The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall. Today I am joined from California by one of the greatest American songwriters of all time, Don McLean. Don's songs have resonated through the ages and have been covered by the likes of Madonna, George Michael, Ed Sheeran and Elvis Presley. And I Love You So, Vincent and of course American Pie are all firm favourites in the American songbook. The latter, American Pie, released 50 years ago in 1971, might even be considered an alternative national anthem. It was voted number five song of the 20th century in the US. The original working manuscript from American Pie sold for $1.2 million at Christie's. This is testament not only to the power of Don's music, but to the power of his lyrics. Don, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. What a lovely introduction. I'm genuinely thrilled. I, I, I remember singing your songs even as a boy. I, think, I have a memory of being at a wedding age five or six and seeing all the adults taking their ties off, the men taking their ties off, <laughs> dancing on the table, singing, singing American yeah. Pie. That has the effect on people. <laughs> Party time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It must be unbelievable to have a song even resonate with one other person, but to resonate with so many people year after year, decade after decade. Very few songwriters could even imagine that having that experience. Well, I, I guess it has a sort of a prismic effect. You know, you see things in it as you grow older and it stays with people. I had a lot of fun writing the song and actually all the songs on the American Pie album and making that album was magic. Even the cover, the cover was fantastic. The guy that took that was, the cover is almost as famous as the song. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a, a very wonderful time and I was, you know, immersed in a, a world of a lot of contradictions because there was a lot of music being made, a lot of really good music, and there was a lot of very ugly political stuff in the streets, you know, uh, people getting tear gassed and terrible riots, and, and it had been going on for years and years in America. It was a real, really wide open town, you know, and I made my first album in Berkeley, California, and the guys would come, you know, and they'd been gassed by the police wow. when they got to the, to the session. So you're right in the middle of it. So, the, yeah, so your first two albums, Tapestry and American Pie, and they were made at the tail end of the civil rights movement, is what you're referring to. And the anti-war movement. And the anti-war movement. So this is the height of the Vietnam War. The civil rights movement morphed into the anti-war movement in a strange way. It's kind of like prohibition morphed into women's rights in back in the 1930s or 20s. It just happens that way, you know, things don't stay static. But it was very uh, tumultuous. And so I, I was caught up in that. I was really, I think, took my job seriously, you know, as a songwriter and a singer, because I knew how much a song could mean to people if it was the right song. 
so I took it seriously. I didn't see it as being an entertainer or, you know, particularly a show busy type of a person. I saw it, you know, I like entertaining people and I like singing for them, but there was always information, you know, that I'd like to get across, whether it was a song about poverty or a song about the environment or whatever. Yeah. You've got very beautiful songs about Vietnam War, the 1967 one, and, and yes. The Grave as well. I think actually George Michael sang a very beautiful version of The Grave. But those songs, protest songs, I mean, they're clearly mournful and lamenting the tragedy of, of war. Well, you know, a protest song, Dylan called those finger-pointing songs. They're different, really, from those two songs that you mentioned, because they're portraits, really, of relationships in 1967. You know, it's his buddy Joe who was brought back in plastic, and he talks about it. And the other song is a man. It's a dream that I had, you know, that I was in a foxhole, and all of a sudden I was in my own grave, you know, and I realized that. I wonder how many guys you know, in the middle of this horrible experience, realize, holy mackerel, you know, I'm already eight feet underground, you know, and, and gonna, if I die here, I'm already buried, you know. So it's these kind of concepts rather than pointing the finger at LBJ or Nixon, which was very hard not to do, you know, in those days, but... So was it about capturing the mood of the time and, and did you sense a sort of responsibility in... Well, it's the human aspect, you know, it's the humanity of it, hmm. rather than the abstraction of, you know, this is wrong and we must end this and this kind of thing, you know, making it human. And that's always the key, you know, to any great movie, it doesn't matter what it is, it's, it still comes down to personalities and the interaction between characters. There's someone I really want to ask you about because he was, I believe, a friend of yours in that period, and, and it's Pete Seeger. And I'm sure the spectator won't be thrilled about me promoting famous communists, but he wrote a brilliant book on banjos, which for me helped me when I was starting the banjo. And I still would recommend it absolutely to anyone wanting to start that instrument. But I'm right understanding he was a friend of yours? Yes, he helped me get my start. I wrote how to play the five string banjo. That was a little book that he put out in the 1940s. I think he mimeographed the first ones. Yeah. And he was very good at finding wood cuttings and different artistic things to put in there. He was an excellent teacher. He really was a teacher more than anything. And he wrote a book about how to play the, the guitar and how to play the steel drums and how to make the steel drums out of a, uh, an oil drum. Yeah. So, you know, he liked to pass this information on and get these books made. But the fun for me was that I, I had been writing him since maybe junior high school because I fell in love with the Weavers. I still am in love with the Weavers, and I knew all of them, got to know them very well. And back then, you know, I read how they had been blacklisted as a little boy, you know, 14 years old in Nourishell, New York. I didn't know anything about the blacklist, you know. That was much too intellectual for me. But what I did was I wrote away to Washington and asked for transcripts of the House on Un-American Activities Committee. And they sent me a big box from Washington. And I was my mother, I was 15 at the time, 
and it got delivered and my mother said donnie what is this you know i said oh just some stuff from washington i'm <laughs> i, I want to see what they're saying and what kind of questions they're getting asked you know and yeah. So that's how deep I would get into things. I'm still that way today. You know, if I have a pursuit, I'll get way into it, you know, all the way. So the next step really was I had to get to know these people. So I got to know, I called Fred Hellerman, who was the guitar player in the group on the phone and just cold called him when I was 15 and got to be his friend. And every month or two, I would give him a call and talk to him and he was very nice and next thing I knew I I got to know Lee Hayes and Eric Darling who was the replacement for Pete Seeger and the Weavers and tremendous banjo player and so the fun was watching them play because I was there sitting and I would ask him how do you do this how do you wear your finger picks how do you get that and it would show me exactly how I did it and the same thing happened with uh, with Pete so I would say, how do you do that? You know, and he was, oh, it's just like this, you know, and it was the most wonderful thing, you know, to have the man right there because, you know, you used to have to watch if they were on TV and try to figure out what was going on. And you really, it's very hard to know from a book, you know, how something's supposed to sound but when you're right there and you hear it and then you, you say, how do you do that? And he shows you, I mean, I'm telling you, it was the most fun and I, I love the five-string banjo. I'm glad that you play that. You, you play that instrument. I played it a lot back in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, I used to do recording sessions. I'm on a bunch of records. I'm on some Clancy Brothers albums, and I'm on uh, a Redbone album, Leon Redbone. There's one called On the Track, and I play on Polly Wally Doodle. Playing banjo. And I do some damn good work on Polly Wally Doodle, I got to say. Wow. That's awesome. I'm going to have to listen to that when I get home. It sounds like a very encouraging and nurturing environment that you were, you were in at, from a very young oh, age. Yes. I was used to having everything knocked down by my, my father and mother really didn't know anything about show business or any of that. I, I can't tell you how far away they were it was they were we were really nice people and very good parents and and they loved me a lot but there was not a lot of joy in the house so this music you know brought this wonderful joy to me you know their singing and then i discovered so many other artists as a result and you know josh white and the way he would play guitar still fascinates me and so many others and, of course, I loved electric guitar, too. That's why I love Buddy Holly, you know, and um, yeah. I love great singers. So I loved Elvis Presley and Marty Robbins and Roy Orbison. So I was full of music, and you know, and I really didn't know where to turn. You know, what did I want to do? Did I want to be in a group? Did I want to be by myself? I thought at one point I wanted to be a, a flamenco guitar player. I loved Carlos Montoya. You know, I realized how hard that was. <laughs> And the folk thing, you know, kind of suited me because you could do a lot of different things. And the same with the banjo. You could have a lot of different strums and techniques and things that you could use. So I was got good at collecting those, you know, having more and more of those. Mm. And then the folk thing came along with little nightclubs everywhere. 
you know, where you could go in and there were a lot of people like me, you know, who didn't do much. They weren't that good. Would this be in New York City? Yeah, this would be in New York, but they were all over. They were in colleges, everywhere. There was a little coffee house you would play. You could make $100, you know, and I, I was supporting my mother at the time and $120 was her rent. So if I just did one of those, I could almost make her rent for her. And then I, I was always busy doing these things. And then I became an opening act to all these big, big stars, you know, like Steppenwolf. And that was in 69 and started to get wider and wider into show business, you know. And with the first album, Tapestry, then it broke loose. Then I was played on the underground radio a lot, FM. And I was doing concerts in colleges and and learning how to perform, you know, how do you do this? So I kind of knew how. I was always sort of pretty good, but I had a lot to learn. Yeah. I was very curious as well. Uh, this might be a, a small uh, story within it all about your doing the Hudson River. Was it the Sweetwater Boat? It seemed to me one of the first environmentalist protests oh, yeah. uh, from within the music industry, uh, led by Seeger. But seeing yes. as that mm -hmm. come now is, is one of the most talked about issues of the day, you were sort of way ahead of, of your time, five decades ahead of your time, really. Yeah, I had to be there. I like information and I'm, I'm fascinated with intelligence. There's so much stupidity around now. It really is offensive to me. The things people say and the the slogans they believe in and just so dumb. But he was so interesting to be around because this is before he built his boat, the Hudson River Sloop. I helped raise money for that. I got started with him in 1966 when I was still in college. And But I, as I say, I had written him since I had been like 15. And so he knew about me and he would always answer my letters. I'd get it maybe a year later, but I'd get an answer. Give me good advice, you know. So after I finally met all the other weavers, I met him in about 1966, and then again for real in 1968, because the following year I got a job singing on the Hudson River, sponsored by the New York State Council on the Arts, and I sang in every river town, starting where the Hudson starts. So here I was in the middle of this getting a lot of publicity, and here he was doing this thing. So we, I met with him, and he was nice enough to include me in some early festivals that they were doing. And, and then, you know, they would bring scientists out on stage to talk about what was going to happen in 50 years if we didn't straighten out. And here it's 50 years later, and everything they said is happening. Wow. Everything. I go and I look at, see these ice caps melting and see these rivers, the water rising. It's every single thing. I knew 50 years ago. Wow. You said just a moment ago, all these slogans people are now believing. I'd be curious to know what sort of slogans you're referring to then. But I also wanted to ask you, I've heard you say recently, political correctness is a new type of fascism, which I found quite a poignant thing to hear from you, particularly you being friends with Seeger, who was blacklisted by the government. Yeah. Well, here's what I think. I believe that the Me Too movement started when women, which was an, an empowering women, and they'd had enough of being exploited in corporate situations. And Harvey Weinstein was a guy who behaved just like 
Cohen at Columbia Pictures. What was his name? I can't think of it. But these guys were all the casting couch. That's what they did. So, But women had had enough. So he got his. And then they started picking a whole bunch of other people who were doing this kind of thing. And they made examples of them. All good idea to do. You don't have to have this in the environment. Then you have the the death of George Floyd. And then you had this whole thing where black people were just sick and tired of being shot, you know, for doing very little. Over and over this was happening. And finally it was symbolized by... And then, of course, that moved into pulling down these Confederate statues and getting rid of the Confederacy once and for all in their flag, which I find offensive. So I was perfectly on board with that. This is a good thing. And those statues were put up in order to frighten black people and let them know that white people still had control in the South and to, you know, you know, watch your step. And that's what those statues really were for. And so they should come down. And the flag should be not flying on state property and so on. That's the good thing. But now it's started to, I think there's been a certain aspect of this where people are a little bit drunk with power. You know, well, we'll kill that and we'll kill this. And so in a funny way, you know, I I sometimes think, well, we've canceled the environment. You know, we've canceled the animal kingdom. I mean, certainly more than 60% of all the species in the world are gone in the last 50 years. We're canceling the oceans because there's so much nitrogen and plastic that fish can hardly exist. We've canceled God. We've canceled religion. We've canceled civility. We've canceled the English language. You, you know, in a sense, isn't that what American Pie says? Isn't that the day the music died? Isn't that the day we're in? Hmm. And so as this song comes back again, you know, which these songs tend to do, it's talking about all of this stuff that's been canceled. It's, it's, it's on this day. You know, this is the day the music died. That's what I think. And uh, I've seen this coming to some degree with songs like Headroom and Primetime you know, which is about seeing all your experience through the television and, and music being made by robots. I mean, I, I think that people don't make music really anymore and that the recording studio lies. You know, the camera and the recording studio are now liars because everything is Photoshopped and everything is fixed up and you can't tell. But in the old days, if you went in the studio, you'd better be ready you know, to do your very best work today because the meter is running and the other musicians there are very, very good and they don't make mistakes. Yeah. And you better be at your best. And you don't have to do that anymore. Everything is fixed up later and phoned in and computer part is sent in. Yeah. So in a sense, my song, coming as it does now, is in a way a sort of an anti-cancel culture anthem in a sense, or at least it's telling people, hey, this is what we're in, you know? Yeah. At the beginning of this conversation, you said you talked about the morphing from the civil rights movement into Vietnam and these things, and now you're describing again in this era, the Me Too movement morphing into Black Lives Matter protests. Over there in America, having gone through both those 
experiences. Do you see parallels between them? Well, I think the one thing that I, I can't understand is that the idea of, of cancel culture and political correctness has made people afraid on both sides to say anything. So this is the big difference, as I see it, between now and those days in the 1960s. Everybody was very out front about how they felt about everything. Mm. Today, you really don't know how people feel because they're afraid to say something, mm. because they're afraid they'll be criticized or you know they'll offend somebody. Nobody cared about offending anybody in the 1960s. People realized that you know their point of view was not going to be agreed to by everybody and that if that was too bad, well, because we didn't agree with their point of view. So everybody was offended. But now there's this primitive kind of reaction to offending people that has completely closed off the college campuses to comedians, for sure. They can't go on a college campus because they can't say anything. You know, or they're going to offend somebody and then they're going to get in trouble. Like Dave Chappelle is now the poster boy for that. And I looked at his special, The Closer. I didn't see anything offensive with it. Yeah. You know, he was very gentle about everything and very funny. But, you know. Well, Chappelle is in a similar category to yourself where he's somewhat uncancelable and you guys can, I suppose, I think, say what you want, whereas perhaps there are younger artists, or maybe I should ask, do you think, what are the consequences of this so-called cancel yes. culture for well, other see, artists? I, I for... never thought about that. I said what I wanted to say, and the consequences be damned. And to some real extent, I'm still the same way, because I'm too old, you know, to have any of this hurt me all that much. Hmm. You know, I roll along, so I say what I want to say. But I think that when you have that kind of a chilling effect where you don't really know what might happen, and especially, not if you're an artist, because an artist can always find a home somewhere, but if you're a regular working person, mm. you know, in, you can imagine the environment in the office, you know, you said something wrong, you know, you made a comment about, I look good today, I'm telling the boss, you know. Mm. I mean, Chris Matthews, was one of my favorites. He was on MSNBC for 20 years. Hardball was his show. And he was flirty. You know, he would say, you look beautiful, or I've, I'm in love with you, or something like that. Got him fired. They just yanked him right out of, the, out of the seat and took him by the ear and put him in the street for saying benign things, you know, nothing bad at all. So it sends a message. Okay, don't compliment anybody, you mm. know. And more and more, we're closing that civility, can't really be say anything. And so I think that that's a big difference from the 1960s, is that you knew what people, people offended everybody all the time. Are you kidding? You ever see the Firesign Theater? They were a funny group. They did a bunch of albums on Columbia. They were hilarious. And they had all these comedy troops, you know, that, Second City and mm. SNL came out of Saturday Night Live, came out of that. And there was Canada. They had another group of people and they but produced Martin Short and John Candy and all of those guys came from Canada. They didn't say anything, mm. you know, do anything. And that's what made it so much fun. Yeah. 
Well, let's end on a more positive note. What are you excited about and what is next for Mr. Don McLean? Well, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got to get this album out next year. I've got to get our children's book launched in uh, April. And we have Peter Gallagher, the television, who's on the show Zoe's List. I don't know what the full name of that is, but he's very popular. He's, he's done the audio book version of it. I've got to do a big world tour, which is going to take me to probably over 100 cities, maybe more. Wow. Plenty of other things, you know, going on. You know, and what will happen is one thing kind of leads to the next, you know, somebody will pop up somewhere and say, um, oh, yeah, well, there's also a Broadway show that they're planning, which will use a lot of my songs in a musical Broadway type of a thing. We've got that all contracted for and they're out there as well. So I know what I'm doing. Fantastic. Don, thank you so much for your time. I wish you all the, the best and great success for all these various projects. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs>